0: Greetings. This message is being given on September the 2nd of 2014 on Tuesday at approximately 9.39 in the evening. My name is David Thompson. For those that are new, I just want to briefly mention that I am seeking to give these messages to the body of Christ and to all those who, in God's foreknowledge, happen to hear this message individually and also to seek what God would be saying to me personally. The word of God says that if any man minister or if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is what I am seeking to do in this message is to allow the spirit of God to speak through me, not my words, but the words of God. And part of doing that involves me seeking the right chapter to give. And so what I practice most often is the casting of lots before God. Something like this only works if people are walking in a pure life before God, of holiness, pleasing unto the Lord. And they don't take this as a game. There are many scriptures that support the casting of lots and it has been practiced by the nation of Israel or the Church of Israel and also throughout church history from the very beginning of time. So much for the introduction. So today I'm going to share with you the passage of scripture that I received through the casting of lots. This particular passage is Deuteronomy chapter 16. This was also received only two days earlier, the very same passage of Scripture. So I believe there is significance that I received this passage twice. Now, the other time I didn't give a message on it because I don't give messages... Every day, but almost every weekday. I do not know possibly what God would be saying through a passage of Scripture like this, which is certainly far more difficult to share from. But I know that the Holy Spirit begins to reveal things, even as I'm speaking, that I've never seen before in my life. And I'm praying that that will be the case in this passage of Scripture. Especially when I'm a far more, had a far more busier day, and certainly are somewhat more exhausted because of that. Normally, I would read this whole passage and then share, and probably that's what I will do. It's not a particularly long passage, only 15 verses, so I will read it first. So I will begin reading Deuteronomy 16. This is a message, of course, to the children of Israel. In the time of Moses, observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God, for in the month of Abib the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith, even the bread of affliction, for thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coasts seven days, neither shall there anything of the flesh which thou sacrificest the first day at even remain all night until the morning. Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates." which the Lord thy God giveth thee, but at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name in, there thou shalt sacrifice the Passover even, at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. And thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt turn in the morning and go unto thy tents. Six days thou shalt eat on bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work therein. Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee. Begin to number the seven weeks from such time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with a Tribute of a freewill offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God, according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite that is within thy gates, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. <clears throat> and thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and thou shalt observe to do these statues. Thou shalt observe the feast of tabernacles seven days, after that thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine. <clears throat> and thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son, and thy daughter, and thy manservant, and thy maidservant, and the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are within thy gates. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God, in the place which the Lord shall choose, because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase, and in all the works of thine hands. Therefore thou shalt surely rejoice. Three times in a year shall All thy males appear before the Lord thy God, in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God which he hath given thee. Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee throughout thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Thou shalt not wrest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee, neither shalt thou set thee up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. I'm praying now that the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal to the body of Christ, to myself, and to his people, what he would be seeking to say to us from this passage of Scripture. In the first section of this passage from verses 1 to 8, we have a description of the celebration of the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. <clears throat> Paul the Apostle talks to the New Testament church in 1 Corinthians five eight, and he says, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in this Passover which is the sacrifice of the lamb that the children of Israel originally sacrificed under the commandment of Moses the day before they left Egypt. We know, many of us, from the reading of the Old Testament scriptures, that they were to take the blood of the lamb that they sacrificed, which is to be a lamb that was perfect, that was spotless, and for the whole family. And if people were not wealthy enough, they would partake with those that could have a lamb. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the two side posts of the door and on the upper lintel that crossed the upper part of the door. And then there was a death angel that was to pass over the children of Israel. And when he saw the blood on the door, he would not enter and kill the firstborn. But all the firstborn of Egypt were killed that night by this angel that was given the commission to kill all the firstborn. The firstborn of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the firstborn of all the children in Egypt, the firstborn of all the animals and the cattle. But among the children of Israel, of all those, which included all of them, that sacrificed the lamb, they were spared the judgment of their firstborn. And so they were commissioned to celebrate each year the feast of Passover. And this lamb that they sacrificed was to be eaten that night with nothing left. After it was roasted, it was to be fully eaten by The time morning came and it was the next day that they left Egypt it does mention here about them leaving at night but you can imagine that there would be a tremendous assembling of the children of Israel so that possibly was morning by the time there was the full exodus that's a minor point we know that this passage of scripture is a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice which is jesus christ who is called the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world innocent lambs were sacrificed from the time of adam and eve throughout the history of Israel, where they placed their hand on the innocent animal. That wasn't always an innocent lamb, but in many cases that's what was used, of course, for those that are new. There was other animals, such as um, heifers and so on, that were used according to special instructions. But basically it was a symbol of the transfer of sins that they had committed onto what would, would represent innocence and purity? It is very clear from various scriptures in the Old Testament that there was an understanding, very clear, that this did not mean that it was the animal that had the power to forgive them. They knew that forgiveness came. From God, but God's requirement was that they did this as an act of repentance in their heart for their sins, as well as an act of reaching out and appropriation to receive the mercy of God to give them forgiveness. They did recognize that the sacrificial animals could represent their physical being, but it could not represent their soul and their spirit. Therefore, they understood the cleansing of the physical realm and of the physical body, which allowed the presence of God's Spirit to dwell with them, but not to indwell their soul and spirit. That could only happen after God himself absorbed the judgment of sin upon himself for all creation, which happened in Jesus Christ. For only he, God, could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. Only God could resist all temptation of sin, which he did in Jesus Christ, for it says that he was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. And as such, As it were, he took the first man, Adam, that sinned, in which the whole human race, as it were, came from or existed in. And therefore received the consequence of Adam's disobedience, reverberating through the blood lineage in a nature that was at enmity with God. Jesus Christ, as a word, took that first man, Adam, through resisting temptation and picked him up and carried him to the cross and nailed him to the cross so that we could be transferred from the first Adam into Jesus Christ, the second Adam. And receive God's forgiveness that after Christ involved also the cleansing of the soul and the spirit. And so we discover that Christ said to the disciples before he died on the cross, you know him for he, that is the Holy Spirit, dwells with you, but he shall indwell you or be in you. And that is the difference before Christ and after Christ. Those from the time of Adam till now, there are those that have been brought forth in you of the Spirit or born of the Spirit of God, as is described in John chapter 3. Christ said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see, that is, perceive with the eye of his heart the kingdom of God. And he went on to describe what it meant to being brought forth anew of the spirit of God. And so I briefly want to give an understanding here of all that is represented here in the Passover, which is a foreshadow of the ultimate reality of that God brought forth and foreshadowed in the nation of Israel. They recognized that forgiveness was in God, and there are various scriptures that make that clear in the Old Testament. They recognized that there was a cleansing that allowed and, and gave assurance of God's forgiveness by his presence being able to dwell with them, but not to indwell them. They recognized that only God himself could have the moral capacity to be able to forgive sin, which clearly implied, and I'm sure that they recognized this many of them, they were very intelligent people, even more intelligent probably in the pre-flood world, even intellectually, But whether intellectually or subconsciously or by revelation, many of them recognized this quality in the being of God. And I will describe God's being, which is the very life source of the universe, the very source of governance of all existence and of all creation. The word of God says that God is love more than once in the scriptures, particularly in 1 John. It de- directly declares that. God is love. But what is love? In the sense that is defined. There's agape love, which is the highest form of love, which is the love that is being described in 1 John. There is filial love, which is the love of that is more emotional and on the soulish plane. And then there is Eros love, which is the sexual love. I am talking about the highest form of love. This is a quality that may contain feeling, but is not contingent upon feeling. It is a choice to choose the highest lasting good in the case of God and in all beings that conform to that in their choices. The highest-lasting good over any more immediate choice that would be less for a more immediate fulfillment rather than a lasting, ever-enlarging fulfillment. In God, that choice is totally free and volitional. In fact, because God is love, he did not create us as robots, but as beings that are the source of our own action. We have our own free will. We create our own destiny. As such, we have the capacity to love. God's intention is to bring us in our free choice into harmony with Him in His love. But the quality of this love in God has absolute purity and integrity, so that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would in be in any way contrary to this love that I am describing, this agape love. This aspect of God's love, that is the integrity of God's love, the purity of God's love, is the holiness of God. It is the defensive aspect of his love. It is the foundation that allows the love of God to be fully expressed without corruption and thereby be able to continually be enlarging in creativity of expression and fulfillment that goes on and on and on. And that expression of love could never be without the foundation of this integrity of love. But it is out of the foundation of this integrity of love or the holiness of God that this expression of love was ultimately manifested by God, In his son, who came into the center of history and took and absorbed the judgment of all creation that has rebelled against him upon himself. Of all creation that has been tempted indirectly through the things in the creation and the powers that are behind that trying to manipulate them, which is the devil and the powers of darkness. Unlike the angels and Lucifer that sinned directly against the presence of God without any temptation. But in this case, I am describing that the ultimate expression of this love was that God wanted a corporate bride and that was revealed in him condescending to this world in his Son. And I briefly describe the triunity of the one true God here. For God to govern the ultimate dimensions of all existence, which are that which is beyond time and space, that which is in the time and space realm, which is his creation, and filling all space. God to be beyond time and space and government, must be in personage in that realm, and as such is the originator of all things, as such is the one that sees the end for the, from the beginning. But he is expressed in his being to govern within what he is expressed in creation in the time and space realm, and so he also is in personage in the time and space realm the son is the expression of the father the word son means expression hebrews 1:4 makes it clear that jesus christ is the full expression of the father or of the government of god beyond the time and space realm that is the originator that sees all things he is the one he is the one true god that governs in personage in the time and space realm and he governs by filling all things with his holy spirit in personage and is able to be in all places at all times and to do creative acts in personage by his Holy Spirit that is in the Father and in the Son in government. And so this is the one true God I am talking about who condescended in Jesus Christ and became and suffered more than you a mere creature and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. Just let that sink in. Consider the awe of that, that God's mercy that is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. God, I should say God's holiness that is that way. The integrity of love is out of that foundation, manifested in a love that is so great for you as an individual and for his creation, that he could assure mercy and forgiveness to those that repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. But in the days before Christ came, in this example in Deuteronomy 16, where we have this foreshadow, They also recognized clearly that the source of forgiveness was in God because God had the moral capacity out of such an integrity of love to have such creativity or expression of love and mercy to the point that he had the moral capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice to absorb the judgment of creation of his Creation that repented and received his mercy, that would repent and receive his mercy. And so by the act of laying their hands on that innocent lamb, it was an act of their sorrow and of their repentance over their sin of reaching out in recognition to God as that ultimate lamb of God, that ultimate source of forgiveness that takes away the sin of the world. How, you say, do you ask, is it possible that the people before Christ were born again? Well, Christ expected Nicodemus to know what being born again of the Spirit was before he even died on the cross. That was something he was teaching before his death without describing at all to Nicodemus, his death. People had an intimate relationship with God like Enoch, like Abraham, and like many others, like the ones that prophesied in the camp of Israel, which the elders of Israel told Moses to tell to shut up. And Moses said, I wish that not only they would prophesy, but all of Israel would prophesy. The Spirit of God came upon them and dwelt with them, and they knew him in such a close relationship that Enoch was translated, that Elijah was translated. When people choose to fear God, which is the essential thing that begins rebirth, how does that happen? The choice to fear God is the choice to recognize the reality of who God is for who he truly is. And it is the recognition of this integrity of love or this holiness of God that that is ultimately trustworthy because only such integrity of love could contain unlimited power and unlimited life without being corrupted by it. And as such, points towards it being the ultimate source of life. And so they recognized, first, that God was ultimately trustworthy because his love, his holiness, was totally pure. The holiness of his love, if I can put it that way, or the integrity of his love, or the purity of his love. This is the defensive aspect of God's love. And when there is a recognition like this, when you see the consequences in creation of violating and rebelling against this being of God, there is the consequences of severe judgment. And so there's death in creation. And it's reverberated through Adam to the whole human race and the whole of creation. And so... It is easy in seeing and observing the suffering to begin to be offended at the consequences of God's holiness. Even King David, when they took the ark out, I don't have the passage that I can quote you right now on that, but when they took that ark out, because they were not reverent and obedient and they had put it on a cart when they were to carry it, and it began to almost topple, God's presence came out and struck dead the priest, and David became afraid of God. And there needs to be a recognition in this passage of the importance of recognizing the utter awe of God's holiness. But what happens then is there can be this fear that creeps in that can cause offense so that one gets a distorted image of God. If they allow that offense to continue and do not begin to turn around and recognize, and recognize, no, this is good, because behind this holiness is the capacity to hold goodness without corruption, to hold unlimited power in life in a way that is ever constructive, ever enlarging in creativity and fulfillment. And that is ultimately manifested in the mercy of God, the power of God to assure destiny to his creation, the power of God to be able to forgive because he has the moral capacity within his being to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. And this is really shown in various passages in the Old Testament. But what I am describing here is something in order to describe the rebirth, that took place before christ what happened is when you choose the pure god from the very time of adam and eve till now when you choose to recognize that you deserve the judgment of god that apart from god you are nothing you deserve hell when you choose to recognize that this is not a negative or an evil thing but that it's a recognition of what is ultimately trustworthy to contain goodness. Then you recognize also the mercy of God out of that. And that God can assure mercy and destiny to his creation. And when there's that recognition of, as it were, the negative and the positive aspect of what is the ultimate source of reality, the I am that I am, in Hebrew, it's a hiyah, shara hiyah. When you recognize that, you choose to recognize it. You choose to acknowledge that you need the mercy of God. Your spirit is like a closed fist before it recognizes that. Always trying to fill the void of the emptiness within you like a black hole in outer space that can never be satisfied and that in its choices is always causing hurt and destruction around others because it is in a state of denial and deception and delusion to buy into lying vanities as if they will fulfill you, as if they will last forever when the word of God says, he that observes lying vanities forsakes his own mercy. It is when we recognize the emptiness of our life and our need and that only reality can satisfy that inner vacuum, that God vacuum that is within us that also has that destructive nature in it that is always grasping. And the more it grasps, the more destructive it becomes. But the good news is that we were created to find completeness and fulfillment by God's Spirit indwelling us now. And then they could know the dwelling of God's Spirit that allowed them to know God, as Christ said, but ye know him, for he dwells with you, but shall be in you. After, that is, I die on the cross, he was referring to. And so there's the recognition and the moment so one spirit is like a clenched fist or like a black hole. And then it opens up in recognition of who God is in his holiness, out of, which it out of which there is the recognition of the mercy and therein of the love of God. And so the word of God says that faith works by love. Your spirit opens up into a state of selfless trust in recognition of what is ultimately trustworthy. Because it can provide destiny also, not only because it has this integrity that requires judgment. And out of that comes the open hand representing selflessness in which the Spirit of God then comes to dwell with one's soul and spirit, represented in a hand against a hand, representing a two hands in prayer or the seat of the new divine nature. And so people experienced through the dwelling with them, knowing God, being brought forth anew you the Spirit of God in this way from the time of Adam and Eve. They were born again. Remember Christ said, whoever has been taught and learned of the Father comes to me. And indeed they saw in the Father the holiness of God and the mercy of God. And Christ said, who ever has seen me has seen the Father because in the Father is the expression of who God is and the Son, Jesus Christ, is the full expression of God that governs, that is the originator, that sees the end from the beginning. So in this passage of Scripture here, we have the Passover lamb being sacrificed. And it was only yesterday that we read in Hosea about this. And there's so much. I I know I could preach for three hours on this now, even though I thought I couldn't preach that much on it. I've laid a foundation here for this passage of Scripture, for those that are new. And in this passage... There was yesterday Hosea chapter 3 that we read. When it, and it discusses and gives a very accurate prophecy in Hosea chapter 3. And I'm turning to that right now. Hosea chapter four, 3. Going to Hosea 3. And it says here in Hosea f- chapter 3 a prophecy of what will happen to the nation of Israel. At this time, they were still offering animal sacrifices. But it says, Thou shalt... Ab-, it says, for verse 4, pardon me, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without a teraphim. Now, that's true right now of the nation of Israel. Until their temple is restored, they do not want to practice animal sacrifices. But they are wanting to restore their temple, many of them. And the word of God indicates they will in the last days. And it says here that afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 16 that we are in. We see that there is in the practice of eating the Passover lamb, the understanding of taking into us the atoning work of God. As it were, it's like reality to our soul. It is the way that the reality of The I am that I am, who who is reality itself, indwells us. And he is the very true life source of our being. It is not the natural food. We can eat natural food, and the moment we stop it, we die. But this is the food that when one partakes of, they will continue to live as Christ said, whoever believes from their inner being in me shall never die. I'm not quoting it. Dead accurately, but in essence, that would, is what he said. And here we see that they were to eat this Passover lamb with bitter herbs, representing a deep circumcision in the heart, a bitterness in the soul. What is this bitterness? It is a bitterness over the recognition of our unworthiness before God, of his mercy, of the holiness of God. Of recognizing our need of him. Genuine belief from the heart is actually a moral persuasion that causes us in our spirit to reach out in recognition of who God is. This is a choice to fear God. It is a choice to reverence God in these two aspects of his being that I've described. And the word of God says that Jesus Christ which is the very expression of God or the son of God is also called the word of God the word of God also means expression and it is described also in another way it says that the word it says in Hebrews 4:12 that the word of God let's go to Hebrews 4:12 I can quote it but I want to, in this case, be a little more accurate in quoting it. And so I'm just going to go quickly to Hebrews 4.12 here. Turn there. And it says here, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It talks about the sword of the spirit being the word of God. And it goes on to say here a little bit more about this. But this is the particular verse I wanted to point out. This two-edged sword represents these two aspects of the being of God's ultimate love that I've described, which is the purity or the integrity of his love, out of which issues also the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God the creativity of God, the capacity of God to provide destiny and purpose to creation, to be able to expand in creation without corruption. This is in the sense of his intent, which is a corporate bride. Obviously, we make choices that are corrupt when we are not choosing to abide in God. But ultimately, he is bringing forth a corporate bride that will be totally pure and in conformity to his love. And it involves a deep circumcision in the heart. Everyone knows what circumcision is. It is the cutting away of the outward and of the flesh. And this is representative of the spirit, the spirit and the soul. The spirit is the capacity and the being of man to worship the soul is the self-awareness of who we are. And when we are in a state of deception, whether it's through a religious philosophy where we try to refine our ego through meditation, we always end up only refining our ego beyond the comprehension of our mind and depersonalizing ourselves because it's like trying to nail someone's oneself to the cross, you can never get rid of the deception of pride and of self by trusting in self because we are not the source of perfect love. Only God is the source of this perfection of love that has no corruption in it, that is the very container of, of goodness, of unlimited life and power that is ever enlarging in fulfillment and creativity. And it is coming to the place of being in utter awe of who God is and recognizing our needs so that we cry out, as Christ said, concerning the publican. The publican beat his breast and cried out unto God and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said, this man went down to his house justified but the pharisee was saying i thank god that i fast and i do all these things and other people are so impure but i'm so pure what is the difference one entered in to a true recognition of who god is and of their need of god and was brought forth anew by the spirit of god so that god's spirit in the old testament dwelt with them And now, of course, we experience also the indwelling of his spirit in an intimate relationship, a fellowship with God. But it involves a true contrition, a true breaking of this state of pride, which is like the shell of a seed that cannot sprout until that shell is broken. Or the shell of an atom where the electrons spin around and form a hard shell. It takes an ultimate negative and an ultimate positive or a strong negative and positive to break the shell of those electrons and cause the flow of life or the flow of electricity, as I'm illustrating in this case. So in this particular passage that we are reading in Deuteronomy 16, there's the description of the Passover lamb and of partaking of this reality that we take into us, and we don't take it partly in. It had to be totally eaten. It had to be totally received in fullness. A total, deep, and genuine turning from the heart of crying out unto God and embracing his mercy and his forgiveness. It is interesting to know that in Ezekiel, it is evident that the children of Israel will again be doing animal sacrifices, and yet they will have the Messiah, Jesus Christ, among them. How is that so? Today, we take the communion. And in taking the communion, it helps us to focus on the ultimate manifestation of the being of God in his love to creation, which was displayed in God himself becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross through himself and Jesus Christ, the full expression of himself into this time and space realm. But I can tell you this, It would have a lot more impact upon us if we actually offered an innocent lamb as representing the one who has already redeemed us. Does the lamb cleanse us from sin? No. Or the innocent animal? It represents that. Now, I don't know for sure. These are speculations in some measure to know exactly what's happening in the millennium, but it would seem that that is the case since it indicates in Ezekiel that the children of Israel will be offering animal sacrifices and yet have their Messiah. But they will recognize their Messiah is the source of forgiveness, that He died on the cross because it says plainly in Zechariah chapter 12, They shall look on me whom they have pierced. That's God speaking. They shall look on me whom they have pierced. And that's a prophecy of what will happen to the nation of Israel in the very last days when their military might will be broken as they are surrounded by many nations. And at that point, they will be cornered to cry out to God with all their heart and he will come as their Messiah and stand on the Mount of Olives and reveal his pierced hands to them and they will recognize. And it says they will mourn in bitterness for him because they will be like that publican, mourning before God, recognizing that they were the ones that crucified him and that they deserve God's judgment, and they will be mourning, not out of rejection, but out of recognizing God's love that he would forgive them. Oh, I could go on talking about Joseph, which is a foretype of Christ in the fact that he showed mercy to his brothers that that sold him as a slave into Egypt. And when he became Pharaoh and brought them before him, he could have killed them. And instead, and they didn't know he was Joseph and had become Pharaoh. And when he revealed himself to him, he wept. He couldn't hold his tears. And he said to his brothers that sold him into Egypt out of jealousy, I am Joseph, your brother. And they were in utter contrition before him, in utter brokenness, and cried out for mercy. And he showed love and mercy to them. That is a four type also. And this is a four type here in the Passover that they were to celebrate from generation to generation. And I could go on speaking on this passage of scripture and we'll continue to speak. I can speak for a while yet. To kind of bring out the other things that are in this passage of scripture. They had to take, after eating this whole Passover lamb, they had to take unleavened bread for seven days. And I quoted the verse already in 1 Corinthians 5.8, where Paul describes this feast, and he says that we should keep this feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a place that allows for nothing that is false. Nothing that is false. And when one comes into a place of recognizing who God is in his holiness and in his mercy. It brings utter awe. It brings one to the place of utter humility before God, where it says, be still and know that I am God. Of utter soberness, contrition, where the hardness of pride, of self-deception in the heart then breaks and melts. As we learn to gaze with the eye of our heart and who God is and his reality of love and these two ultimate aspects of holiness and mercy or the integrity of love and the mercy and grace of love that comes out of it and as we do and we spend quality time in prayer seeking God there's no room for pride there's no room for that which is on leaven. And we begin to eat the bread of affliction as it described this eating for seven days. It is the affliction of the soul. The children of Israel were called to celebrate Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. It is the day of recognizing their need of atoning sacrifice to be one with God. And they were commanded to mourn on that day, and if anyone did not mourn, they were cut off from the nation of Israel. God is showing through this day of atonement called Yom Kippur, the utter importance of us knowing the fear of God in relation to his atoning work for us on the cross. That is the focus, the crystallization of God's being of love towards us as an individual and towards us corporately as the body of Christ. And it should cause us to know the release of that expression of God as a two edged sword that circumcises the enclosing of the soul in its deception, where the spirit worships the soul in a state of pride, which is represented this in this place as bread that is not, that is leavened rather than unleavened, that is puffed up, that is proud. And so there is in this passage of scripture God calling us back not to mere ritualism, which is what O leaven represents, where people fall into the mere practice of the outward rituals without the reality, because They fear the holiness of God or they take offense at the holiness of God and the consequences of suffering in their own personal lives in relation to the creation around them as well. Like Cain, who because of that began to perceive God as an enigma, as someone that was afar off that he didn't fully understand. His heart was hardened and alienated from God and he began to see him only holy as a dictator and didn't see the goodness of God behind the holiness of God like David, that became afraid of God. But he recognized later that it was not that God wasn't good. He recognized that God was good later on and came to continue to take the ark with great dancing into the temple of the Lord. God is calling us as his people to repent of our superficiality, of being puffed up. So many church services start their meetings with lots of dancing and joy. Is it wrong to be dancing in joy? No. The fact is, though, that's all they know. The fact is there's very little contrition. There's very little of the fear of God. There's very little of knowing what it is to be still and know He's God, or to wait on God and not speak presumptuously out of our own self-initiations. When we begin to perceive the holiness of God, our self-initiations of presumption and of being puffed up die. They wither in his presence as the pride in our heart is broken. And then we are filled with the Spirit of God. In a fullness of reality and of his presence that can rise out of that humility in great expressions of love, just like out of the holiness of God is the foundation that expresses the creativity of that love manifested in God seeking a corporate bride that was revealed, particularly in his love to condescend and die on the cross and taste death for all creation that would repent that has been tempted and turns back in the knowledge of who Christ and God is. So the Lord is calling us as his people to have genuine joy, not the wildfire of superficiality and of weirdness that misrepresents the glory of God but the reality of his presence that burns as a flaming fire that devours the dross of our own ways. When there's the genuine openness to God like this, we do not limit God individually or corporately. We are open to letting him have his way in our midst. Churches need to repent Leadership needs to repent of control in the meetings that does not let the spirit of God move through the members of the body that does not want to start the church service with the leaders on their face before God and calling everyone else to get on their face and on their knees before God and to humble themselves and learn to worship him out of the fear of God and spirit and in truth. And out of that will come great sensitivity to the Spirit of God and great liberty and jubilation that is not a counterfeit where people conform to one another in some manifestation or form that brings another denomination where everyone is like a bunch of bricks that looks the same because they want identity more in their leader and one another than they do in their relationship with God because they have not entered in to this genuine worshiping of God and spirit and truth, which is only possible out of entering into the genuine fear of God. The genuine fear of God is an ongoing reciprocation. It is the mouth of our heart that is eating the reality or taking in the reality of who God is. One part of that mouth or the lower lip, if you will, can be the foundation, the holiness, the purity of God, the upper part, the mercy of God. And so there's this reciprocation. As it says in the word of God, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in it. It also says, and I believe it is 1 Peter 1, or is it 2? I believe 1 Peter 1. It describes the various virtues that we are to add to, to our relationship with God. And then it says this, he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. But what brings us in to a place where we are not blinded by the deceptions of our own orbiting of self in the things of this world that hardens us is to continually learn the secret of abiding in God. It says, of the Messiah in Isaiah 33, I believe around verse 5 or 6, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Yes, I'm not going to go into for time describing how the triunity of God is in reciprocation in the same way. The triunity of the one true God, the Almighty's one, Elohim, is in the same way. The Son is always appreciating the glory, the the wholeness that comes out of the holiness of the Father, out of the integrity of the Father, in, in, in a wholeness that manifests beauty. And of course, in that beauty is the glory of God. And the Son is so filled with thankfulness and attractiveness to it that he says to the Father, I love you so much, Father, that I want to condescend and suffer and more than even my creation, in order to bring to you a corporate bride that you can enjoy. And the Father says, I love you so much, Son, that I'm willing to let you go. And and to suffer that separation that you may inherit a corporate bride that you can enjoy in me. And God is seeking this wonderful oneness that is described in John 17. And so I have described this Feast of the Passover. And then we have, and there could be a lot more that I could share on this. And then we have the Feast of Weeks in verses 9 to 12. That is the Feast of Weeks. And again, in this Feast of Weeks, this is the beginning of putting in the sickle to reap the harvest. And there's free will offerings that are brought unto God of the first fruits of the land. And they're commanded to rejoice before the Lord thy God. And there's uh, an interesting statement throughout this passage of scripture that repeats itself a number of times. For example, in verse 11, it says, and thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God. And then it describes everyone in the family rejoicing and the different people that make up the community rejoicing. But it again says that they're to remember that they were once bondmen in Egypt, to remember what they were saved from, to remember the greatness of God's judgment upon them, but also the greatness of God's mercy in delivering them. But it repeats a statement in a lot of these verses that is quite interesting, and I'm trying to just locate it here. It mentions a number of times that these feasts are solemn feasts, and in the very same verse, and one case for sure, it says, at the same time as you are to be in a solemn assembly, you are to rejoice before the Lord. How is this possible? It is possible because genuine joy comes out of the solemnity that is in the fear of God. There are many today that are teaching a false teaching that emphasizes joy without the fear of God, that emphasizes one thing and somehow tries to declare that somehow to represent God, we always must have joy. Well, we don't have to self-initiate joy. If we have the joy that comes from God, that joy comes out of first absolute reverence and awe in the fear of God that causes great humility, that bursts great and deep joy. And there are many verses throughout the New Testament that emphasize this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. It also says in 1 Timothy 3.11, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. It says in Titus eight. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. It says in Titus two that the aged man be sober, grave, temperate, sound in the faith, in charity and patience. It says in Titus 2.4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. It teaches in Titus 2.6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. And it goes on, and there are many verses here. It says in Hebrews twelve nine, Furthermore we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father's spirits and live? It says in Hebrews twelve, twenty eight. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It is out of the reverence and the godly fear that is birthed humility, and it is out of that that the grace of God is released in our lives. For God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. God commands us to be afflicted, to mourn and to weep, to have our laughter turned into mourning and our joy. And likewise, that we might draw nigh to God, that he might draw nigh to us, that we might enter his grace, that we might enter his joy. Yes, I'm not talking about not having joy, but that that joy should be pure, that it should come with great liberty because we have learned what it is to gaze upon the glory of God Which is out of learning to grow in the fear of God. It says of the early church that they grew in the fear of God. And so we have in verse 16 it also describing three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. It also emphasizes in this passage of Scripture that there's a specific place where they are to do these sacrifices, to do these feasts, not just anywhere. Now, why is that? This parallels the verse that Christ talks about when it says, if any of us ask anything in his name, he will do it. He is describing his name being designated in a certain place. That there is the place where they are to do their worship and their offerings. Now, the word name is an understanding that it is the expression of God's being. The understanding of name in Hebrew is what I am to you. It is the expression to me, to others. The understanding of the word soul is what I am in reality in myself and to myself, that I am not someone else, I am who I am. If you look that up in the Vines Old Testament, you'll discover that. And what God is wanting to say in this passage as it applies to us is this. His name will be in the gathering of the saints that allow his name to be totally expressed into us because we are open with our heart to receive that two-edged sword, that expression of the Son from the Father, that expression of Jesus Christ to us through being in worship out of the fear of God. The gospel that will be preached in the last days is described in Revelations chapter 14 as the first angel that preaches this gospel and then right after that, the angel that destroys the world system, which is Babylon that sits in many waters, that has become immoral with all kinds of immoral practices which we see that are being flooded in God's face now is destroyed and then after that the antichrist system is the third thing that comes on the scene but it's this angel in revelations chapter 14 and it says and i saw an angel in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to every and it describes and it goes on to say basically to the whole world and it says saying fear god and give glory to him and worship him Those two things come out of the fear of God. Pure worship comes out of the fear of God. And it is that pure worship that can happen. And when we have that kind of worship, it means that we also have great respect and reverence for one another that allows us to come into a unity because we are willing to on to repent of the spirit of control that will not allow the members of the body to function freely in their gifts. Paul the Apostle said that God would pour more abundant honor on the part that lacked, that there would be no schism in the body, because when there's no control, more abundant honor can be revealed through a member of the body that isn't very attractive to humble those that are looked up to. Pride comes by contention. Division comes by contention. The spirit of control is when it's broken out of the fear of God. There's respect for the least in the member, member in the body of Christ. And then there's a unity that allows the name of God to dwell in the midst of the saints, that allows his glory to come down to establish his authority and his fullness in the body of Christ, so that when we gather together in his name and pray in agreement. There's real answers to prayer, real mighty works. This is when the greater works happen, when there is this kind of relationship with God and with one another that allows a designation in our community, in our city, a beachhead for his presence to come down and dwell in our midst, as it describes in the New Testament, that the We are like living stones that are being built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And it also says in Ephesians that when there is this unity, where all saints are brought into such a unity that they could comprehend the height and the breadth and the depth of God's love, that the fullness of God will fill us. And when that fullness of God fills us, the next verse talks about how if we ask anything in, in his name, He will do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. The power cannot work in us unless there is this reciprocation of unity with God first, Elohim, the Almighty's one, and with one another. With Jesus Christ, obviously, the chief cornerstone. Brothers and sisters, this is what God is saying through this passage of Scripture. I couldn't go into the Feast of Tabernacles In this particular passage, of scripture for time, but the Feast of Tabernacles I have preached in other messages. And it is a type of God's dwelling among men and of us recognizing our pilgrimage in this world, that this is not our continuing city, but that we are to be those that are focused on a relationship of God and not in this life to allow the shell of our heart to form but rather to be like the booths that were open that could see beyond the stars and that they were to dwell in. And so that's all I can say. And that allows for God's ultimate habitation in the new Jerusalem to begin to come down in every community so that we can conquer our nations, our cities for God, because we are coming in alignment with his headship instead of man's. God bless you and thank you for listening to this message. I look forward to continuing to share the good news of the everlasting gospel of the last days. Thank you.